Hello listeners and welcome to another episode of Runnymede Radio. In this episode we hear from Shannon Salter, the chair of British Columbia's Civil Resolution Tribunal, Canada's first online tribunal. Ms. Salter earned her BA and LLB from the University of British Columbia and her LLM from the University of Toronto. She clerked at the BC Supreme Court before practicing civil litigation at a Vancouver law firm for several years. In 2017, Ms. Salter was named one of the 25 top most influential lawyers in Canada. She is also an adjunct professor at UBC's Allard School of Law, where she teaches administrative law and legal ethics. Ms. Salter speaks in this episode with Mark Mancini, the National Director of the Runnymede Society, about the nature and work of the Civil Resolution Tribunal, and how this administrative body is reshaping legal dispute resolution in British Columbia. We hope you enjoyed this episode of Runnymede Radio. Thanks for listening. Okay, well, welcome to this uh, month's episode of Runnymede Radio. My name is Mark Mancini. I'm the National Director of the Runnymede Society. And joining me today, we have uh, a very special guest. We have Shannon Salter from the BC Civil Resolution Tribunal here to discuss uh, the Civil Resolution Tribunal, what it is, and its relationship to modern administrative law. So, Shannon, welcome. Thank you very much, Mark. My pleasure. We're really happy to have you. Uh, and so we'll jump right in today. Uh, and I'll just start by asking, what for those who are unfamiliar or for those who are not from BC, um, what is the Civil Resolution Tribunal? Well, as you've hinted at, it's an administrative tribunal, but what makes it different is it was the first online tribunal in Canada when it opened virtually in 2016. And at that time, it was also the first example in the world that we were aware of, of online dispute resolution being integrated into the public justice system. Um, since then, since 2016, we've expanded quite a bit. Our areas of jurisdiction have expanded. Um, but our focus has always been on human-centered design and on using the blank slate that we had as a new organization to really build our little corner of the justice system around people, um, bring it to them instead of forcing them to fit into a justice system that really wasn't designed for them in many ways. That's very interesting. I'm, I'm sort of someone who's interested in administrative design. So I, I just just to ask you, what is what does human centered design entail? Uh, well, a few years ago, when we started doing it, there wasn't a really well known word for it or phrase for it. But the idea is pretty basic. It's that instead of designing systems and processes around the needs of administrators, only administrators, or um, uh, organizations, that instead you try to see the needs of the person who has to navigate them or use them uh, to obtain services or outcomes. So in the context of the justice system, what that would look like is really mapping the whole journey for everyday people, knowing that people have a variety of circumstances and skills and abilities, and trying to account for all of those things by seeing the system through their eyes and designing then processes that are really built around their needs. And the way you do that is by um, constantly testing and validating your assumptions through um, getting information from the people who have to use it. So for us, a lot of our testing, a lot of our design is focused around community legal advocates who represent people who traditionally have had a lot of barriers accessing the justice system. And so where that will lead you is potentially in a whole variety of directions. One of the ways that it can lead you, though, is towards providing online services and online dispute resolution. And that's really what the CRT is based around. 
Right, and I, I do notice on your website there's it's very user friendly, easy to follow, and it seems uh, like the steps are laid out, so you can see those examples of human centered design there for sure. I think that's right, and I think it is an important point though that having online tools is just one outcome of human centered design, and a lot of the things that we do in the tribunal and a lot of the advice that we've had from community advocates has led us to implement a lot of offline things too, like mm. um, writing everything at a grade six reading level up to and including oh. our decisions, um, offering making sure that our staff are trained in cultural competency and mental health issues. Um, I could give you probably a dozen examples mm. of this, but the key is that um, is that it is a combination of online and offline outcomes that can result from human-centered design, but it's the human-centered approach that is really key to figuring out how to deliver the justice system more accessibly to people. That's very interesting. So how did this, how did the CRT begin then? How did this concept come to be uh, in the form of this sort of online tribunal? It really was the brainchild of a very dedicated creative group of people within the BC Ministry of Justice, a specific group within the um, dispute resolution office. And they saw an opportunity to try out something completely different to help resolve condominium disputes, which at that point had to be resolved in our BC Supreme Court. Mm. And so they saw an opportunity to get legislation passed that would set up a framework to allow these disputes to be resolved online. And, and that framework was the original Civil Resolution Tribunal Act, which was passed in 2012. At that point, uh, some behind the scenes work happened and I was appointed as chair in 2014. I didn't fully understand that the tribunal <laughs> hadn't really been built yet, uh, but it was a fantastic opportunity to get in on the ground floor and we spent the next two years working with a really multidisciplinary team to get the thing launched. And we opened, as I said, in 2016. And I'm sure we'll get into this, but we've been given a new area of jurisdiction pretty much every year since then. That's very interesting. And that was sort of my next question. How did So the CRT started um, built on this concept of human-centered design, but it's still, you know, it has a legal jurisdiction as well. So what is the jurisdiction? of the CRT and how has it grown over time? It began in 2016 for condominium disputes. And I mentioned those previously had to go to the Supreme Court. The community of condominium owners and renters was not very happy with that because it was a very disproportionate, expensive, complicated way to resolve what are really just everyday neighbor disputes. So to go uh, to the Supreme Court on a petition for a dog barking next door it's not really a viable dispute resolution mechanism. So they were very av uh, vocal advocates for, for the CRT or a, a, at least a different dispute resolution mechanism. And that really, as I said, was the genesis behind it. Since then, um, we've, so we, we did condominium disputes for about a year. And then the legislature gave the CRT jurisdiction over small claims disputes, $5,000 and under, which mm. previously had been vested with our provincial court. And then about a year after that, the government announced that the CRT would begin resolving what amounts to about 80% of motor vehicle personal injury disputes. Uh, along the way, we also got jurisdiction over nonprofit associations and cooperative associations. Wow. Uh, disputes arising from that. And then at the beginning of February, the government announced as part of quite a significant change to auto insurance in BC 
that essentially the CRT will now be the dispute resolution body as of next May for essentially all motor vehicle personal injury disputes. So we're embarking on yet another year-long implementation project. But since we've done that every year since we opened in 2016, we're getting pretty good at it. Wow. So that's been that's quite the expansion of jurisdiction over time. And so I imagine your role is to manage sort of this expansion of jurisdiction and operate the CRT. But can you explain a bit more about what you do um, in the context of this changing jurisdiction and sort of the expansion of the CRT over time? Well, initially, it was all about building something that could be scalable. So we didn't start out trying to build specifically a condominium tribunal. We set out to build something that could, through a focus on human-centered design, scalability, and also a big focus on collaborative dispute resolution, which we haven't quite touched on yet, be adapted to a wide variety of disputes. And so it's true that uh, getting that up and running was really just the first part, because with these new areas of jurisdiction, the first thing that we do is a gap fit analysis to figure out if the new dispute type will fit into our existing process. And for the most part, it does with some adaptation here and there. But my role specifically is highly variable. I have uh, 17 full-time tribunal members who I'm responsible for uh, in a in a general way. Um, the whole organization is now about 100 full-time members and staff. And so we've got a fantastic team, but part of the challenge is also managing this growth and making sure that we still retain this focus on continuous improvement, public service, and frankly, a really collaborative kind of startup culture that we have in the organization. Um, so on any given day, I may be dealing with human resources matters, with uh, preparing content for the public or for our web page. I might be peer reviewing decisions from members. I might be in team meetings. I might be working on uh, the development of the next stage of the technology with the tech team. I might be talking with stakeholders. I might be dealing with um, all kinds of different things, which keeps it all very interesting. Very interesting. So so before I kind of jump to the next tranche of questions, which uh, focus on sort of the relationship between the CRT and the courts. Um, I did just want to focus on this collaborative design that you mentioned and the sort of the startup culture within the, the confines of the CRT. That strikes me as very interesting and perhaps different from other governmental decision makers. So can you expand on that a little bit? Yeah, I think that really gets to this idea of culture. And when we started, again, we had the legislation and a, a great team in Victoria, but I was the first and at that time, the only actual CRT person who was CRT, a CRT tribunal member. And then I got to hire our fantastic registrar and executive director, Richard Rogers, who is responsible for a lot of the day-to-day operations mm. and then other key team members. And, and he hired his team. And so we were really able to build it from the ground up with a culture that really values creativity. Uh, we have a very horizontal management approach. So a lot of our good ideas come from the front line and people all feel a real sense of ownership over uh, the tribunal and their work. They're really, really committed. And um, and because of that, we've been able to have a really flexible, problem-solving, committed orientation to the organization. And I realized more and more as I traveled to different jurisdictions and talk about this, what a real gift it was to be able to create a culture rather than inherit one and then have to change it. So if I were to be uh, tasked with going into a court, an existing court tomorrow and starting an ODR project, 
I'd approach it quite differently than I did uh, the CRT, because there you'd have to go into an existing culture and figure out a way to start something new while not um, <laughs> not provoking a rebellion or making work life impossible for people who have been doing things a particular way for a very long period of time. So right. I definitely have ideas about that, but that's probably outside the purview of, of this conversation. <laughs> <laughs> well, kind of on that point, um, you know, one of the things I wanted to ask you, it's it, to me, and I, you know, I'm, I'm not the expert, but to me, just how you describe the CRT and what I've read about it, it just seems uh, qualitatively different than other administrative decision makers that we typically hear about that are adjudicating disputes, doing much the same kind of legal work, but just seems like there's a difference in the culture maybe and the, what, what, you know, certainly the jurisdiction, but definitely in the culture. And so I wanted to ask, what, what do you, do you consider the CRT to be sort of part of the administrative state, the modern administrative state, or is it something separate and apart from that? We're an administrative tribunal like any of the other 29-odd tribunals in British Columbia. You know, we get our jurisdiction from the legislature via our enabling statute. Right. Um, you know, we that's what we legally are. But I think the kind of flexibility that's afforded to administrative tribunals, you know, subject to the statute, uh, and certainly the, the flexibility to make procedural choices, um, that can get best give uh, give effect to one's mandate have given us, I think, a lot of latitude in how we decide processes using human-centered design. Mm. So I, I think you're right. I've, I've served in uh, other on other administrative tribunals, and there's certainly a wide variety of approaches in this regard. I do think in a general sense, the entropy of the administrative justice sector can be to become more court-like over time. And Mm. what I mean by that is that there is a tendency to add more process, more rules, more complexity, more delay, uh, more exhaustive uh, kind of proceedings, often overlaid in a context which by design was meant to be flexible and proportionate and efficient and timely and affordable and all of those things. So I think one of our challenges in the CRT is to resist that natural entropy. Uh, we have a very careful discipline about adding new rules or adding new questions on a form or adding new complexity. Uh, whereas I think that's something that other administrative tribunals are also starting to become quite alive to. In British Columbia, we've had quite a lot of um, sort of rejuvenation in the administrative justice sector. You see a lot more chairs who are sort of more my age um, and not uh, towards the end of their careers. You see a lot more diversity among the chairs as well in terms of background and gender and so on. And that's also imported with it, I think, a lot of new ideas and approaches about these things. So if I think it's very hopeful, at least in British Columbia, there's certainly a directional change towards more human-centered design, towards more accessibility. Um, And I think that reflects, again, the changing nature of the leadership in the sector. That's very interesting uh, and, and certainly something that uh, we have to keep watching just to see how the administrative state develops in light of changing circumstances. Yes. So, uh, oh, go ahead. No, I, I agree with you. And I think um, I think it is a really important point. I mean, you know this 
working in the area as well, that so many people, and I think Beverly McLaughlin said this, so many people have engagements with administrative decision makers uh, from cradle to grave many more times than they have engagements with the court. And unless we're laser focused on how it is that we can make decisions which are accessible to them, then I think we're failing collectively in our mandate to be able to um, to do what administrative tribunals are set out to do, which is to be more accessible and to be less formal and to be more um, flexible. That's I, th- I agree with you. I think that's really key. And I guess on that note, um, the relationship, you know, I study the relationship between courts and administrative actors. And of course, that's a topic of perennial conversation among administrative law aficionados, but how, how does it, how, what's the relationship like between the CRT and the court system? Is, are decisions of the CRT judicially reviewable or appealable? And if so, how do courts treat CRT decisions when they're reviewing them? The, the answer to that depends on the area of jurisdiction. For small okay. claims, currently there's what's called a notice of objection process by which somebody who disagrees with their CRT decision can essentially get a new trial in the provincial court. Uh, for condominium disputes, though, motor vehicle disputes and nonprofit and cooperative association disputes, all of those are subject to judicial review in our Supreme Court. Mm-hmm. And um, obviously not appropriate for me to comment on any particular case, but right. as a general comment, I think the courts have shown a, a high degree of, of deference to CRT decision making reflected in the standard of review that they've applied to CRT decisions um, and they have recognized in various decisions the CRT's expertise, its mandate and its way of operating and choice of procedure. Um, as another comment, I think uh, as somebody who who teaches administrative law and works in the sector, I always tell our staff and tribunal members that judicial review is a thing to be welcomed. It's not a thing to fear. It's a necessary part of our democracy and the rule of law. And that the courts provide us with helpful guidance in areas where, you know, we may be adjudicating matters which have never been the subject of judicial comment before. And so this is helpful guidance to us and to the public. Um, We have a 360 degree continuous improvement approach where we collect um, guidance from the public, from stakeholders, from our staff, uh, all the way around. And of course, included in that is uh, that when the court uh, judicially reviews one of our decisions, then whether or not they uh, uphold it or vary it or quash it, it's guidance and it's a useful education opportunity for us to get better. That's a that's a very interesting way of viewing um viewing judicial review. And I, I think it's probably different than, you know, how certainly scholars of administrative actors and, and previously, you know, other administrative actors have viewed judicial review. So I, I find that really fascinating. Um, so I guess one other question that we can turn to is, you know, I asked you previously, um, what's, you know, do you consider the CRT to be part of the modern administrative state? Um, and then, I also asked, you you know, what's the relationship between courts and administrative actors? But certainly one of the the reasons we have a modern administrative state is for reasons of access to justice. And that's certainly become a preoccupation of the courts, even on judicial review uh, in the modern era. So how does the CRT contribute to the cause of access to justice? And and more specifically, how does it manage its caseload as, you know, as as jurisdiction grows to manage that those concerns about access to justice? 
I think there's a lot of different components as an answer to that question, or at least a partial answer. Mm. One is that when you can get the technology to do a lot of the heavy lifting, what you do is also free up your human resources to be able to assist those who would otherwise fall through the cracks. So it's just kind of an overview comment. Um, but I think if you drill down, that means a few things. One, uh, what that means is that we provide a lot of flexibility to parties about how to participate. 99.9% .9 of people choose to do so by mail and our web platform, sorry, email and our web platform. Uh, almost nobody chooses to use mail or telephone, but those options are available to people mm -hmm. along with in-person help at a number of government service points across the province. I think it is interesting, though, that even when you offer people those choices, overwhelmingly people choose online communication channels if they're easy to use and, and well-designed. Um, so that's one point. But also what I mean by having the technology do the heavy lifting is that a lot of things like dispute notices and emails and reminders are all automatically generated by our system. Our frontline staff do almost no data entry. And what that means is that they're freed up to do a lot of other helpful things for parties, like walk through on the phone with somebody who might be having trouble and spend a significant amount of time kind of coaching them through the process. Mm. And as an interesting side point, that really affects who you pick to do that frontline role that's typically done by registry staff. We don't pick our frontline staff primarily for clerical skills. There, there's some of that, but we mostly pick them uh, for the customer service background. So we often pick people who have come from call center backgrounds or who have worked in retail settings or restaurants, environments where they're really focused on helping people to solve their problems or, or serving people. And that customer service, I think, approach is reflected by our our participant satisfaction surveys. So uh, another thing we do that's a bit unusual is that people who've gone through the process are surveyed to find out what their experience is like. We don't ask them about the outcome, um, if they agree with that, because as we've discussed, that's a question for the court right. to review mostly. But we do ask some questions like, were you treated professionally? Do you feel that the tribunal treated you fairly throughout the process? Would you recommend it to other people and, and so on? And we get very good scores for that. So I think in terms of access, one of the things that's important is allowing people a lot of choices about how they engage, giving them support along the way, um, really tailoring it to their life so that, you know, somebody can work on their dispute when their kids are in bed or during their break at lunch at work whatever mm. it works for them. So really decoupling it from having to be in a particular time and place, which we know comes with a lot of additional expenses like time off work and so on. Um, but that's really just the tip of the iceberg because there are uh, many, many things that we do to try and increase accessibility. Um, and sorry, because I'm really focused on the point, I'll just mention a couple of others, which is that sure. we also ask people in the application process whether they need accommodation. So that might be for things like visual or hearing impairments, literacy issues, um, mental health issues, or any other circumstance that could prevent them from engaging fairly in the process. And so if somebody indicates, a, it's a checkbox, but if they indicate, for example, that they have a mental health issue, which is something that we um, get fairly commonly, uh, one of our staff members will contact the person and ask really what we can do to make it easier for them to navigate really about kind of evening the playing field if we can. And often what we find is that the um, the plan, the accommodation plan we come up with 
is pretty easy for us to implement, but it's just really important to ask. If you don't ask, you can't take those steps. Uh, as an example, somebody with, a, men with a, a mental health issue might ask for an extension of deadlines. We can do that. We're flexible. Um, somebody with a visual impairment might ask us to rely more on, um, on oral material. So uh, a, a telephone mediation or an oral hearing and so on. Mm. But we find asking has done a lot to build trust with both community advocates and the people that they serve. So that's one thing. The, another thing that we do, and again, there's a litany, <laughs> is <laughs> make it really easy for people with a low income to be excused from paying fees. I, I recently wrote a paper about this for the Supreme Court Bar Review, but the court process across Canada for a low income person to be excused from a very modest amount of court fees is extremely onerous and complex and often quite humiliating. We didn't want to do that. There's no, no. evidence to support that. So somebody with a low income can literally click three or four buttons and instantly get their fee waiver. So there's a lot of things that you can do through design choice too, that increases accessibility. But what you have to do as a starting point, I think is again, that human, that difficult human centered design work um, combined with looking at empirical evidence and questioning everything about why it is we do the things we do in our civil justice system. Okay. Well, Shannon, um, much of, uh, much of the news these days have been, uh, preoccupied has been preoccupied with the COVID-19 virus, and we've seen court closures uh, all across the country. Obviously, this impacts on uh, access to justice, which we were discussing earlier. What has been the CRT's approach to the COVID-19 outbreak, uh, especially you know in, in light of this access to justice concern? Obviously, it's very concerning and has been really difficult for the justice system to navigate across the country, and in part because it is a system that's still quite reliant on brick-and-mortar, in-person, paper-based processes. Um, so about a month ago, we started working on our COVID-19 business continuity plan. We obviously had quite a head start because 70 of our 100 staff and members already were working remotely. But over the last mm. month, we're now in... Uh, mid-March, um, we moved everybody else to working remotely as well. And because of that, we've continued to be able to operate normally. Uh, we're open and working the same way that we always have from the public side. We've obviously made some adjustments behind the scenes. And what that's allowed us to do is really focus on ways that COVID-19 is impacting our parties. So because we're not so worried about having to deal with just keeping our virtual doors open, a lot of our attention is on things like uh, granting more extensive delays for parties to respond, because we know mm -hmm. that for a lot of people, they won't be receiving or responding to information right now. We're also putting a pause on issuing any default orders until after May 1st, because we don't want people to be prejudiced by being on the receiving end of a default order that they haven't had a chance to respond to. And we're also making our fee waiver process, which I have described, even more flexible by allowing people to get fee waiver, even if they wouldn't ordinarily meet our criteria. So again, being able to already have a distributed workforce, online processes mean that most of our energy, again, is devoted to the human-centered part of imagining how this will impact tribunal participants and trying to use our process and flexibility to make it easier for them. What you're doing uh, with the CRT sounds uh, just so unique and cutting edge. And so it raises the question, uh, what are some of the challenges, I guess, that are associated with 
implementing such a new vision about administrative design, uh, what are some of the challenges that come to mind over the process of the years that the CRT has been in place? Well, can, candidly, the technological challenges or the process design challenges are not the hardest thing. Uh, we're lucky to have some really creative, bright, interdisciplinary minds on our team. And, and between the lot of us, we usually think about workarounds that can both give effect to the rule of law and our mandate, but be creative about the process that we use to discharge that mandate. So that part, while it has its own challenges, uh, is actually not the hardest part. The hardest part over the course of the CRT's history, I would say, is more the change management. I would say change management in terms of persuading stakeholders that this is a good thing for people, that it uh, that we are very committed to access to justice. The legal profession is not one that embraces change readily. Right. And so having to go out and, and persuade people that um, this is our vi vision and it can work and reporting back transparently about how it is working has been really key in building trust. Um, and I think especially with community legal advocates who overwhelmingly are quite supportive of this. I think there's um, a deeper answer to your question, though, too, which is that for those of us who have come and joined the CRT as lawyers or from a legal background, I think there's also a change management process we have to undertake within ourselves to disabuse ourselves of some of the um, just inherited ideas we have about the law, about the practice of law, about the way that the law needs to work, about the language that we use, about a lot of the artifacts around time and place. Um, and all of those things are, are things that we've had to interrogate ourselves about, those of us who work within the CRT um, as lawyers. Uh, and and those are now things that I'm encouraging, I think, all of us to really critically think about. The fee waiver example is just one, but there are so many threads that if we start pulling on them and, and dig into why it is we do things in a particular way, what we come up with is often not a lot of anything, or at least not a lot of anything empirical or sound. So no. I think time is now to sort of really radically interrogate a lot of those well, we do it this way because we always have kinds of things. And I think if we do that across the justice system, wherever that leads, the outcome is likely to be something much better for people than it is now. Mm. Yes, it strikes me that a lot of what you're trying to do is change minds. And that's sometimes the hardest thing to do in any institutional context. That's true, although interestingly, not so much with the public. Uh, the minds that we've had to focus on have pretty much been, um, you know, uh, legal minds right. <laughs> um, right. <laughs> and, and some mediators maybe too and other other stakeholders but the vast majority of members of the public do not look at the CRT and think well that's weird they right. look at the CRT right. and think yeah that's how it should be yeah that, that's how I do everything else in my life um, what a relief that I can understand this and, and that I'm, I'm not going to have to take time off and figure out a court process what right. a relief that I won't have to hire a lawyer although of course, people can get legal advice if they want to. So, um, you know, the, the change management with the public, almost nothing. Certainly yeah. an awareness building and, and letting people know we're here and, and how we can help them. But the change management has been very much focused on the legal profession, which I think, you know, maybe says a lot of things about... <laughs> about <laughs> the profession, um, right? Well, about the profession and some of the things that we inherit as, as, as sort of truths about how things should work. Right. 
Well, uh, on that note, I think that's a very uh, promising note to end on. I want to thank you, Shannon, for uh, coming in and chatting with us today about uh, the CRT. It's really doing some cutting edge work. Uh, thank you for your time today. My pleasure, Mark. Thank you for listening to Runnymede Radio. To learn more about the Runnymede Society, visit our website at runnymedesociety.ca or follow us on Twitter or Facebook.